I believe in the small things too, like making sure that the patient doesn't eat the same meal for a week because someone wanted to be lazy. I believe that small things go a long way. They are not necessarily the fundamentals, but they definitely go a long way to building the um, rapport that is necessary to providing good care. If your patients do not trust you, you cannot take good care of them. Simple as that. Your parent patients have to trust you. If your patient does not trust that you have their health and well-being at the center of everything that you do, and they don't have that faith in you, you cannot give them good care. You build that rapport with your patient with a lot of small gestures by listening to listen rather than listening to respond. By giving them emotional space when they're taking in big shit and they're having their emotional meltdown and they're behaving poorly. And you give them the emotional space to be the emotional creatures that humans are. When you treat people very well and you treat them with meeting their needs where they are at in the moment, you are going to build a level of rapport that will get you so much further. People frequently ask when I'm working with them why my patients are willing to wait for me. Why my patients don't get like bullshitty, angry, and hostile at me when they have to wait for me. And I often say it's because I have rapport, because I take the time to spend with my patients to build rapport. And patients know that when I'm with them, I'm going to do everything that I can to make them in a good space. I'm going to take my time. They know that because if they're waiting for me, it's not because I'm fucking at the desk doing paperwork. It's because I'm with another human being that needs my time because they trust me. So when I say, I'm sorry, I wasn't available, they believe me because they have trust. And when you have trust in your patients, your job is going to be easier and you're going to be able to get better care. It's just going to be a much better experience for fucking everyone. So absolutely, clairvoyance, I think those small things go a huge way to building that rapport, to be able to create that relationships of trust. Small things are important and we all too often overlook them. My top favorite jobs would be a pilot or an EMT. I don't know why. I always thought that they were cool. A nurse would be cool too. Too bad I ain't got the brains. I think that you can work in in healthcare without um, being an intellectually like driven person. You don't have to have like a really high IQ. Um, in fact, the majority of nurses have a average IQ or moderately above average IQ. We are not geniuses. We are not brilliant people. We are not like, oh, Einstein. Um, but it does take dedication and it does take time to stuff all that stuff in your head. Um, and what that looks like for everyone is different and how much of a challenge that is, is different for everyone because of the challenges of the educational system. But being a good nurse is more about having genuine human regard having genuine compassion and empathy for other human beings and a genuine want to see other people do well and thrive. If you have those things, those are things that I cannot teach you. Those are things that you either come with or you don't. I can teach you how to put a Foley in someone. I can teach you how to do a dressing. I can teach you how to pass medications. I can teach you all of those things, but I can't teach you those fundamental moral values that will make you a good nurse. It's not the skills that make you a good nurse and a healthcare provider. It's that inside character and those moral values that's going to determine whether or not you are going to be good in that profession. And those are not things that I can teach you. Sadly, her ADHD would not be compatible for the restrictive academic environment. She has considered this before, but has decided she is good at orienting people instead. And 
Yeah, um, <laughs> I definitely looked at becoming a professor and teaching people, and I looked at becoming a clinical instructor. However, the academic environment is very much driven to be structured for people who are neurotypical thinkers and who are um, mainstream learners. And I am not either. And I'm not a mainstream neurotypical thinker. I don't teach that way. I don't practice my life that way. And so to be able to stand up in front of a lecture and have an organized presentation that will reliably be presented with the same information every time I give it to my seven different classes, I can't do it. I, I can't be that person. Can I offer people wisdom? I like to believe so. I like to believe that I have knowledge that's worth imparting. Um, am I a teacher? Yeah, in the moment, I can absolutely teach people how to do things. But I am not the formal academic instructor. You know, to be organized is like to have an org a, a lecture that I stay on topic and stay on task and stay focused because we're supposed to be talking about cancer today. I can't promise that I will stay on the topic of cancer. It's entirely possible that my brain will be like, hey, did you know that there are cheese caves in the United States? Because my brain just works that way. I, I <laughs> Teaching is a whole different area. She just has such a great way of saying things that I feel nursing students need. <laughs> like I said, I, I do believe that I'm a teacher, but I don't believe that I am a professor. I don't believe that I have that style of teaching in me. My dad has been a pragmatic, oh, sorry, a paramedic. Paramedic, pragmatic, those are two very different things. <laughs> I love it when my brain like just rewrites what is on the page. <laughs> My dad has been a paramedic for 25 years, and when I wanted to join him, he told me you will always ask yourself if you've seen it all, but you will never ask yourself if it is worth it. Um, I ask myself if it's worth it all the time when I do the whole nursing thing. Whew. Especially in the last five years, I've been asking myself, is it worth it? And I recently had to answer no, that it was no longer worth it, and I chose to leave bedside nursing and it was honestly one of the most difficult decisions I've made in my whole life and it comes with a lot of emotional stuff because I love nursing and I love being a nurse and even though I am no longer at the bedside I still am doing nursing things and I am still going to continue to be a nurse and I'm still going to strive to help other people achieve wellness I'm just going to do it away from the bedside but I do think that you need to ask yourself, is what I'm accomplishing here in this job worth it? Is it worth the sacrifices that I am making? And is it worth the sacrifices that my family is making in my absence? Um, and I had to answer honestly that it no longer was to be a bedside nurse. So I've had to like <laughs> reevaluate shit and restructure and fuck. Ah, that's a huge hurdle. For me, my family have been paramedics three generations long, and you will make it four. Yeah. Um, so I've had quite a bit of family in the medical field. Um, my mom was a um, EMT, and that is initially where I thought I was going to go, kind of follow my mom's footsteps. Uh, she became intermediate. Um, I tried being an EMT and absolutely fucking hated it. Absolutely fucking hated it. I made it about a year I think it was about a year, year and a half at most that I was an EMT and went, nope, not me. Mm -mm. This is, this is not my, this is not my hoping. It did not take me very long to know that I was not meant to be an EMT, that I was not that person. 
the unpredictability of the environments, the lack of control over the environment, the chaos that is a car accident scene. It was all not something that my autistic structured brain could, could really work well within. So it was definitely not my environment. I decided when we were coming back from a long vacation drive and a crash happened on the highway, three girls were very hurt. My dad jumped out of the truck and said, give me your beach towels. And me and my sister were like, no little girl drama. He took them and helped them and a friend of his happened to be passing and they helped the girls till the ambulance got there. That's when I saw what he does and I loved it. Oh yeah, paramedics are absolutely fucking amazing. I tap my hat to them. Um, it's a high burnout rate for a lot of really good reasons. You guys see some shit that just like ain't nobody got any business seeing. Um, and you work in really sketchy environments that are not always safe, that are not always secured. Um, you're working on the side of the road where an accident just happened and sometimes cars pile up so you could become part of that accident. Like EMTs are not given the respect that they absolutely fucking deserve. You guys are amazing. I cannot do what you do um and the level of trauma that you guys experience like emotional trauma damage that you guys take is really high and that is why that there aren't very many paramedics who last 20 30 years because it's really really hard what happens second time you go to the hospital for suicide thoughts thinking about going back because i tried recently so there's no clear-cut answer to that First of all, I'm very sorry that that's something that you're struggling with right now. And please make sure that you are safe. There are um, phone numbers that you can reach out to. Um, there's the suicide uh, hotline. You know, don't be afraid to call for help. Um, the number is now 988. You can text them or you can call that number and it is the suicide crisis lifeline that they can offer you support. Um, but as far as what's decided, it would be determined on your assessment. If they de deemed that you were imminent risk of self-harm, you could be blue papered. Um, that's a very real thing. Like that's how that works in our country. However, that's based on someone's clinical judgment, whether or not they think that you're imminent risk. So I, I don't know what would happen. And that answer is the same, whether it's your first time going or whether or not it's your second time going. That evaluation stands as the same process. However, the longer your suicidality has stood and the more times you have had attempts, the more times you have engaged in self-harm, the higher risk you will score and the more likely you will be blue paper. Make sure that you're safe. That does not necessarily mean going to the ED. That is not always the best decision. Um, but do make sure that you are around people who will help you maintain your safety because that really is the most important thing. You cannot achieve anything else if you are not safe. That's what's most important. Yeah, the scary places are crazy. Someone gets a gunshot wound and a crowd will hold the ambulance door shut so you can't get to them. It's sad, but it happens. Yeah, you know, when you have like conflicts that are like gang related or um, ethically driven or any of that, um, yeah, you can get people doing some really hateful shit.
a good chat with a good variety of worldviews and ideas about complex topics. Yeah, it's been it's been a good discussion tonight. I feel like everyone has stayed respectful, and I really super appreciate that about the Dazzle, um, that you guys have always been respectful of each other and respectful of the conversations that we're having and acknowledging that we're talking about stuff that's really complicated. Um, so I, I really appreciate that nobody has gotten into, like, hateful trash talk. Perhaps define blue papering for those who don't know. Okay, so blue paper is the term that we use for involuntary commitment. Um, so when someone is determined to be an imminent risk of harming themselves or someone else, they can be involuntarily committed to a mental health hospital. And the first 24 hours of evaluation is usually done in an ED just because the beds are not readily available. Um, and that is usually done on what's called a blue paper. And it's called a blue paper because it's literally required that you print it on blue paper. And it's so that you can tell where they're at in the involuntary process. But it is the first piece of paper that happens legally to make it so that you can be involuntarily committed or required to go to a mental health facility against your will. So you can be legally forced to accept mental health services, whether you want them or not, if you are determined to be at risk of harming yourself or other people and have a psychiatric illness. I don't agree with this, but it's how our country runs things. So blue papering is that first piece of paper. It has legal hold for 24 hours, which means that another healthcare provider who is psychiatrically certified um, is required to evaluate your safety after 24 hours and then determine whether or not you are going to be involuntarily held or released, whether or not you still meet the criteria of imminent risk. If you are deemed to be still at imminent risk, they renew your paper and it becomes a 48 hour hold and um, that is a uh, yellow paper. And then it, you just keep going through the process. And each paper has a different length of time until eventually you go to court and you have a hearing where they will present their case as to whether or not you should be legally held. And that legal hold, once it's been ruled in court, is usually for a duration of 30 days. The legal hold is separate for meds over objection. A meds over objection is a green paper, and that is a different legal issue, and you have to be able to meet the criteria for um, the, the meds over objection, which is a separate set of criteria. Um, we can do that without a court order if you are imminently, immediately, actively trying to harm yourself or someone else and you are considered to be at a psychiatric crisis. So all of this is really vague terminology, right? Like, and that's part of why I fucking hate it so much. So how do you determine whether or not someone is at imminent risk? And it's, you fucking guess. Because we don't really have clear metrics that tell us statistically who is likely and who is not likely to actually follow through on the thoughts that they're having. So hopefully that makes like the involuntary process make a little bit more sense. And I don't know how it works in other countries. That is only how it works in the United States. Do you still get to see family during that time? Okay, so the answer is maybe. Um, when you are being held under involuntary commitment, they will deem your safety risk. If you are deemed to be highly homicidal and deemed to be highly at risk of harming other people, they can legally deny you having visitors. 
People who are believed to be suicidal generally are not de denied vis visitations. Um, sometimes they are required to have supervised visitation so that if they are concerned that the family members might facilitate self-harm by bringing in items that are unsafe, then they might require that your visitation be supervised so that we can make sure that they're not passing off shit that they shouldn't. Um, the other time that visitation being supervised would be put into play is if they thought that there was like substance use or an abuse dynamic was suspected but wasn't proved. So if you thought that one of those family members had a history of it being abusive to your patient, you can put um, visitation rules into place, uh, supervised, supervised visitation into play. Um, but generally speaking, the only time that they can legally deny you having visitors is if you are at risk of harming other people. However, the pandemic has kind of made visitation a weird, wonky shit anyway. Um, and visitation, of course, is based on convenience of hours and dictated by what's convenient for the hospital and blah, blah, blah. Um, because involuntary commitment hospitals are locked down facilities. That means you are locked on the unit and you cannot just physically come and go. You have to have the right keys or badge access in order to come onto or go off of the unit. It's pretty scary shit. Um, I personally am very much against involuntary commitment for the psychiatric ill because I don't think that it's equitable care. There are a lot of people in our society who have homicidal thoughts and who have expressed homicidal thoughts. And because they don't have a diagnosis of mental illness, we legally cannot hold them. Um, my favorite example of this is um, domestic violence. So you have a most usually heterosexual white male who is partnered most usually with a heterosexual white female. And he is aggressing towards her. This is the most statistically common scenario that is looked at in our society. Um, we'll talk about there being problems with research, but that's a different subject. Uh, but anyway, so he has absolutely said, I'm going to hurt you. If you leave me, I will fucking kill you. This is by definition imminent risk. It means that he's having homicidal thoughts and he has a history of abusing her, has a history of causing her harm, makes him really high at following through on that, especially when you consider statistically in our country, he is the most likely to follow through. A man who has been left by a partner is the most likely to follow through on homicidal or um, aggressive threatening. Yet, even though he's more likely to follow through on those homicidal thoughts, he cannot legally be held against his will in order to protect the person who is leaving the domestic violence. If he happens to have bipolar and makes that same statement, he can be held involuntary in a mental health institution. This is not equitable. I don't, I don't think that we should be treating some people one way because they have a diagnosis differently than we treat other people because they don't have a diagnosis. That's not equitable, that's not justice, and that's not an ethical way to treat human beings. Either it is a good thing to do to protect other people, we either involuntarily hold people when they make fucking threats and look like they're statistically likely to engage in homicidal behavior, or we do not. It shouldn't matter what diagnosis they have, it shouldn't matter what gender they are, it shouldn't matter what race they are, like all of their identifiers shouldn't be fucking a, a factor in that decision. Either that behavior is okay, or it is not, and we engage with that behavior in a prescripted way, regardless of what that person's identifiers are. That's what justice says, 
is the ethical thing to do. And that is what equity says is the um, ethical thing to do. And that is not what we're doing in our society. We are saying that because these people have mental health as a marginalized group, they should be treated worse and they should have less rights than those who do not have that diagnosis. That's that's a lack of, lack of equity. And it makes me angry.